The following is Marianne Sweeney's talk, Groupthink, System Thinking, User Thinking, Design Thinking, from the 2015 Information Architecture Summit. Hello. How are you? And thank you for coming. I'm very happy to have you here to talk about Groupthink. And as I just said, it's not the 1984 kind. It's the how to make it better for everyone involved in the project and the users at the end kind. And so that's what I'm here to talk about. And if you want to know what you just missed in the news, Bruce Jenner is, yes, now coming out as a woman. The royal baby has not been born yet. And there was a young woman who survived for two weeks in the wilderness on Girl Scout cookies. So let's talk about groupthink. I always have an agenda just because it keeps me grounded that I'm trying to cover all of the spaces here. This talk was generated actually out of a dinner that I had with Jim Callback last year at this time. And he brought up the concept of design thinking. And I was fascinated by that and started drilling into it. And I said to myself, why aren't we all doing this? Like, why aren't we all approaching projects this way? It just makes so much more sense, and there are so much fewer ambushes along the way. And so I decided that I would tie it to my other two favorite topics, which are user thinking and system thinking, and that together we're going to come to a process called groupthink. And groupthink is a project kickoff or discovery process that will help you deliver better projects more easily and with a better impact on your users. So that's why I'm here. My name is Marianne Sweeney, and I've referred to myself as a search information architect for the last 10 years. I've been in information architecture for 17. But I went back to school, and as a result of that, I discovered that there's a direct intersection between search engine technology and information architecture. And that actually, information retrieval search engine technology has been using information architecture as a key driver behind document relevance. Did you know that? That's why I'm here, because I want you all to know it. Because people are better than machines, always, always, always. So let's look at the landscape where that exists. And it starts out with context. That Google, as you know, came out with PageRank. And it was very revolutionary, because it was the first time that there was sort of human mediation with regard to how documents were presented as being relevant. And the problem with it was that even though the mainstay of presentation of results was page rank, which was how many links you had pointing to you, the system was inherently flawed because only people who knew how to create a link could vote. So it was kind of like the United States you know, in the mid-18th century where only white landowners, males, could vote. Not exactly fair, but better than they had under the king. So Google comes out with PageRank. The SEO community is like all over reverse engineering that. And Google says, well, this isn't working for us. And so they deployed technology that sort of enabled them to institute not just the number of links, but the idea of an expert linking to you. So the fact that one of you would say that I'm a good information architect should mean more to somebody who is looking for an information architect than, say, if my mom said it. And that was the concept in 2002. And it kind of helped a lot. And then the SEO community reverse engineered that. 
So the search engine said, we're going to get you. You're sort of getting the Wiley Coyote Roadrunner thing going on here, I hope. And they said, we're going to introduce topicality. And they combined a bunch of algorithms and created the ability to organize the web according to the 16 top level categories in DMOS. So not only did you have to be referenced by an expert, but you had to be referenced by an expert that was about the same thing that you are. So it was a great leap forward. And you know, content strategists, booyah. Then the real rubber hits the road in 2010 when Google literally transforms how the web is indexed and how vast the repository is that they have now. It used to be that the web would be crawled once a month. And at the end of the month, it was the Google dance where they would recalculate page rank. And results would go up and down and up and down and up and down. But with the introduction of Caffeine and Mayday and all that, what Google started doing is they distributed how things were indexed. So now they have this like centers all over the world and they send out the indexers and the indexers come back with the information and the information is then rolled up into the segmented index which when it's full is brought into the main index. This is cataclysmic and important. The reason is because in 1997 we had a 15 million page web and we now have multi-trillion page web. Because for every set of running shoes that Nike has on their website, they have multiple pages for color and size and whatever. So the ability for your clients to have their information found and to have it be matched with a contextually relevant query, those were two seminal points. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, Marianne, why are you telling me about all of this? Because in 2012, Google became so annoyed with the search community that they said, we are going to basically, I don't want to say dispense with PageRank, because that gets me in trouble with the SEO you know, traditionalists, the sort of tea party people of the SEO. But what they've done is, PageRank now encompasses like 200 signals, and Google is boosting and reducing and all of that. But in 2010, they came up with the Panda update. And originally, Panda was thought to be about content, but it was really about so much more. Because Google said, with this algorithm update, that they had found a way to metrically measure the quality of an experience. So I'm going to repeat that. They have metrics that they use to determine whether or not customers have a positive experience on your website. And this, whenever I see this slide, I want to burst into flames. Because it says, this site appears to contain a significant percentage of low quality or shallow pages. This is all deemed by the system itself. Then we come with Hummingbird in 2014. And this is really a step towards what I call paternalistic sentience. And with this update, what Google does is they take the customer's query and they revise it and submit it not just to their main index, but they submit it to what they call a synonym engine. 
And if it passes a certain threshold, they then toss in what they consider to be synonymous queries, and they present results for both. So you may know that there was this big brouhaha ages ago about they took away keyword data from Google Analytics. Well, the reason they did, I speculate, is because you don't know what you're ranking for. You could be ranking for the synonym, or you could be ranking for the actual query. And how did the SEO community respond? They all go out on the ledge. They can't figure it out because the tactics, the tricks that they've been using, are no longer working. They're degrading in effectiveness. And that was Google's exact plan. And how do we react? Blissfully unaware. Blissfully unaware. We really don't want to hear it. You know, We're like the SEO people. Those are the guys that come in and make us put in heading tags and all of that. And Google was delighted because they had found a way to stop having their system disjointed. And now they can decide when and where and who gets what. This is where user thinking comes in. This is the landscape that we're dealing with, and I am enlisting you in my jihad so that we can take back relevance to us, those who understand motivation, behavior, architecture, and systems. The core values or the core drivers, theories behind what we do, at least from my perspective, are sense-making. Those of us who have gone to school, those of you who have been bored by us who have gone to school, this was developed by Brenda Durbin, and she basically says that sense and awareness is incremental. It builds as you go along and that you encounter these gaps in your ability to understand and operate, and information is what allows you to get past that gap until you formulate a complete picture. I also want to say that I've posted this slide deck to the slide chair, and it has a lot of notes in here. Like when I cite someone or a document, you'll find a reference in the slide notes. Those are available to you. Marcia Bates, who's also my hero, says that while users no longer, quote, surf through, we don't while our days away, there is a sense of berry picking that we will deviate or we will expand our interest in information points and then go back to what we were originally looking for, either within that search section or after. And this is what promotes my mantra whenever I'm working on a project, and that is there should be no dead ends on any page, that there should always be a next step somewhere else for them to go, either where you want them to go or where they what would relate to being a next step in the journey that they are on. Don't count on them to find that. And there were the good old days when we browsed. Unfortunately, those days are gone. We are not browsing anymore. Most of our searches are very targeted, which is not to say that Marcia Bates's theory of berry picking, you can't tantalize them with something that they may not have known that they wanted to know. I found this yesterday in an article that was actually published in 2014 in the Content Strategy Forum. But it brings up a good point, and it's a point that I was not able to articulate as well. And when I speak at IA and UX conferences, I sense that there's this sense of, you know, why do I have to really care about SEO or where it appears in the search results or any of that? And I am telling you that from a 
selfish point of view, the reason we need to care is they have to find your experience to experience it. And the number one tool that they are using to find it is a search engine. And if you look at any of your client analytics, you're going to find that very near, if not well over 50% of their traffic is coming from search engines, and they are not going to the home page. So what has all of this given us? Well, it's given us some searchers who are exhibiting a great deal of difficulty in finding what they want and discerning what the right answer is, whether it's conflicting information or overwhelmed by the amount of information or missing information. And it doesn't get better from here because as our technology has gotten smarter, we have gotten dumber. And those of you who have watched The Twilight Zone know that this is the road to perdition for all of us and that it's not a book about helping us, it's a cookbook to serve man. And it just keeps getting worse because the lack of orientation that they find in the search results they carry to our websites. And they're not really interested in using the systems that we have set up because the locus of attention is in that center pane where they land on the page, they tend to look at that page. Now, I don't want to bash Google too much. They have been doing some user research. And this is a study that is important for all of us. And the study is entitled Visual Complexity and Prototypicality. And what visual complexity means, and is represented by these graphs from Google, is that big pictures are less pretty. Customers don't like big pictures. It takes them too long cognitively to figure out, deconstruct the message that you're giving them from the big picture. They like a little text to go with that. Text is what helps them understand whether they're in the right place. And if you're too creative, if you depart too far from their mental model of what they expect, they don't like that either. They deemed your site to be less attractive. And what happens when we are faced with an unattractive information medium. That's familiar. We really don't engage with it whatsoever, that big picture. That's not really helping me find what I want. These are all actual screen captures, heat map screen captures from clients in the last agency where I worked. Clients want the big picture. The users don't. Not only that, but they create their own paths, or they ignore what you set up. Conforming and perpetuating the current model causes knowledge to ossify rather than to move forward. That's from Roger Martin, who wrote a great book called Designing for Business. So what we have are these systems that we've set up that the customer is not using. They're creating their own systems, and very often their system is a search system that we do not understand intentionally because the search engines obscure the methodology behind it. System thinking is something that I've been in love with for quite some time. And what's fascinating about it is it was actually developed in the 60s by a software engineer who realized that he was developing software that users weren't using. And so he created a methodology that said, we need to find a way to sort of re-engage with the users. And the reason that they did this, 
carried through to this day is that engineers think differently than users do. Engineers think that we're predictable and that our behavior is consistent, we're methodical, and that we have these very small you know, actions. And that's because that's the world they live in. That's how machines would operate. But as we can see, we're not machines. Marcia Bates and Brenda Durbin tell us that we figure it out as we go along. So when we submit a query, the search engine goes, great, that's what you wanted to know. But we're at the other end going, no, I think that wasn't right. We have system thinking, which is very linear and object-oriented. Object-oriented is you encapsulate something so that you can use it over and over again. And the user is often seen as a sub-process of the overarching process. Well, outside of Star Trek, we're kind of different. We behave differently. So no wonder the idea of just developing software and letting it ride wasn't working at all. And then we get into the differentiation of human processing versus system processing. Systematic versus chaotic. Global versus objective. Passive versus active. So what we have is soft system methodology that was built to just solve this problem. And believe me, how many of us have been on a project where they've already started coding? You know, it's like, we've got to get going. And some people call it agile. I call it crazy. <laughs> so soft system methodology was developed with the idea that you start a project, not just with the kickoff meeting, but that you start it with the stakeholders and the developers and the information architects, and the designers, and the content strategists, and everybody is in the same room. And they have a very specific methodology of trying to figure out what it is that we are doing, what is going to change, what will the change look like, who will own that, and in the end, how will we make it better? And that it's an ongoing process. That's the important thing, is that it's not just you know, linear to an end, that it keeps on going. So there's a cycle of discussion and learning that goes on. And this was the 60s version of Agile or Lean. And it's still with us. It's been with us for a while. And, you know, there's been a lot of sort of renewed interest in system thinking. And here's the soft system methodology mnemonic, CATWO, which is the customers, that's who we're doing it for, the actors, that's who's doing it. The transformation, literally, do we ever think about what is going to transform? Not the beginning or the end, but that process of change. And the world views from the stakeholders, from your users, and from your colleagues that are working on it. What do they see? What do they think? And then how is that going to impact the project? And most importantly, the owner. I've been telling people at the conference this time that when I worked at an agency called Ascentium, if we had a Microsoft project, we'd mark up the bid by 10%. Because inevitably, there was somebody who came out of the woodwork, out of some reorg, and all of a sudden, you had a new owner of the project, and you had to redo a bunch of work that wasn't in the scope. And then, obviously, the environmental influences. Another project I worked on, we found out two months in, three months in, that they were upgrading to SharePoint 2010. That's kind of important to me. And three months in is too late to understand and know that. So what we want to do is build a consensus model. We want to get everybody in the room working together. 
and then we want to work together to express the issues. More than the problem, we want to incorporate these alternate views and address them early on. We want to impact and create scenarios that will help us as a group in formulating this shared worldview, and we want a specific organizational process. From that, we form the conceptual model, which then everyone can refer to and know that they were part of. It's not just what you imagine it to be. It must work within the confines of the system. And there are many systems that our clients have now. There's ERP, there's CRM, there's the content management system. All of those have to be part of the mix. And you as designers and information architects have to understand how they work, and more importantly, how they're going to impact your work. And then we want to execute. We want to, it reminds me of when I was in college, I had a test. I took a class on the Renaissance, and the midterm was describe the Renaissance, use the entire blue book if necessary. So here we have the tip of the iceberg, and I understand that. But in the end, what you have created as a result of SOS system methodology will help you, in one word, create the outcome that you want. And here's a bad Visio drawing of it, which I own. But it represents the continuum that we go on through a project. And again, if you call it agile or lean or whatever, it is imperative in terms of maintaining your sanity during today's fast-moving project cycle. Tim Brown, who is the influential thought leader at IDEO, a chairperson, said, design must match to what is technically feasible. This system, thinking about your projects with a soft system approach, will ensure that you do that, that you stay within the bounds of what technically feasible, because the two words that you do not want to hear that will make your blood run cold our custom dev. Oh, we can do that. It'll just take some custom dev. Custom development is dev, because eventually that guy leaves, or girl, and if he didn't annotate or they didn't annotate their code, you're hosed. Tim Brown wrote a book called Business by Design, or I can't remember, I have it in the notes. And this was a sketch note that he did instead of an index for his book. I just love this. And he said that design thinking is an intersection of an analytic mastery and what I call magical thinking. And I would add to that that you add stakeholder investment and commitment. Very often we treat our stakeholders as these passive sort of Medici's that are up in their palace just waiting for us to finish painting the Sistine Chapel. And what we want is for them to have a more direct involvement into the development of what the design is going to be, because when they do, their commitment is much stronger to the outcome. Design thinking is, as Roger Martin said, a design thinker is someone who is a first-class noticer. And I want us all to be first-class noticers. The most important thing about it is that it departs wholly from deductive reasoning. That's not to say you don't have deductive reasoning, but deductive reasoning is no longer the primary and complete driving force behind the project. And for me, deductive reasoning is top-down logic, and it insists on a verifiable 
conclusion or outcome. And I find it fascinating because when Google was launched in 1999, there was no support for that paradigm. There was nothing that would indicate that a white screen with a single box would work as a search tool. Everything that existed then was like noise, noise, noise. They had facets and folders and things on the back and whatever and all sorts of links and it was a mess. The Google today would not release that product because they insist on data-driven design. And there would have been no data to support that design. That, to me, is why we need to incorporate abductive reasoning into our design process. I'm not saying that metrics or analytics are bad. They're very good, and I'm going to recommend some that you look at. Every design project at IDEO does not start with framing the problem. It starts with the question, how might we? How might we? They posted an article on their blog that was very moving, and it was about how might we redesign the hospice process. Not that the hospice process is broken, not that we're losing people, not that the conversions are off. It's all about how might we make it better. So the tenets of design thinking are represented here, and we've talked about abductive reasoning, and then what we do is we want to not exclude any ideas, but we do want to build on the good ones and make sure that we've scoped it to a finite set of problems that we can solve at some point along the way and post that to the roadmap, but also that we allow some form of experimentation. As IDEO says, there's nothing wrong with failure as long as it comes early in the process. And I find that to be very reassuring because we learn most from our failures than from our successes. And collaborate is that we use silver buckshot instead of a silver bullet. That when you look for a silver bullet, you limit your scope to that one prime solution. But in the end, with design thinking, you accept the fact that there may be partial solutions that can be combined, or there may be many small solutions that lead up to the outcome that we want. These are some familiar tools with us. We talk a lot about joining a cross-discipline, and I've presented on it a number of times. But in the end, we never really seem to engage with that. And you know, part of the problem that I ran into, and this is a process that I designed at my last job with was an agency, is the agencies always say, I can't sell that. And I'm sitting there going, wow, you know, the last five projects that we did, our margin went down to like 3% because we ran into so many cycles and landmines and bombs and, you know, how come you can't sell it? Then you should incorporate it into your fee because it's going to save you money in the end. And secondarily, when you meet resistance about having a four or an eight hour discovery session, I will tell you two of the most successful agencies in our world, Frog and IDEO, subscribe to this process. So it seems to be working for them. And it can work for all of us, and I want it to. Create stories to share ideas. This is something that I don't do enough. And I wish I could, because when you explain why, it makes more sense. And not just saying, I am telling you, but 
put it in a context. We've heard a lot about context at this conference. And the example that they used was there was a company that had designed a water jug to help sub-Sahara Africans, women, transport water from this communal well to their homes. And they couldn't understand why it wasn't being used. And the reason it wasn't being used is it was a five-gallon jug, and when they filled it up, it was too heavy to carry. That makes sense. There's the story, and I understand. And so now how might we make that better? And these are the three spaces of design thinking, and let's look at them in turn. With inspiration, this is not the RFP, and it's certainly not the statement of work. It is a well-constructed, preliminary, creative brief that accommodates serendipity, unpredictability, and the whims of fate. And those all are part of pretty much every project that we come up to. Then we have ideation, and this is the things that we know, brainstorming and visualization and conceptualization. Note here that there is no front-end dev involved because your stakeholders do not know JSON, JavaScript, or HTML. So everything here is low fidelity because everyone wants to participate and they should. And then finally, the implementation. And we know that this is very iterative. I had to go through my slide deck and like make all sorts of changes because everyone else, all conferences, has been talking about all the stuff I wanted to talk about. So remember the soft system methodology here. And that is, we always want to, when we are in the implementation phase, look at what's being acted upon, how is it changing, by whom, and what does the transformed state look like. So what we need to go is from this, which is how often projects end up. I don't want to talk to the SEOs, because they're the ones that come in and tell me to you know, change my headline and whatever. And then you have the SEO guys who are like, don't maybe go talk to the UX people. You know, they just go on and on. Or you know, they look at me like I'm crazy. We have to get away from this sort of internecine warfare that's driven by anger as a result of on-the-spot changes that were misinterpreted by those not involved in the change decision. And I've had that happen to me, where I've done design wireframes. And then I look at the design, and I'm like, well, I mean, I just didn't barf this stuff into Visio. Everything that I did was there for a reason, and if you had come to me, I would have told you what the reason is, and now we have to work around the reason. We want to go to this. We want to respect their work and the method to their madness. And what we want is for them to respect ours, because the users have to find our experience to experience. And in the world that we live in, there are a lot of uncontrolled systems with omnipresent contingent influences of some kind. It's not the world we study or test or design for ourselves, but it's the world our users live in. Because we're all user professionals now. We're all user experience professionals. The devs, the content strategists, the project managers, the IAs, all of us. And it's time for us to get together and do something about it together. And that's what I want. That's the purpose of this. And that's what I mean when I say groupthink. So let's start doing some groupthink. What I want us to do is I want us to discover 
what the client is, what their worldview is, what their expectations and their cultural biases are. You know, every time I start a project, I always ask the client, usually in the kickoff meeting, so what are the sacred cows? And they go, oh, we have none. I'm like, oh, really? I'm thinking you do. We want to surface the interacting systems. We want to define the user purpose and activity for everyone, for the devs and for the designers. We want to iterate the engagement and we want to shift the thinking from the operating for technology to operating for people. I come from a family of doctors. I can't even read my handwriting on that one. So what do we discover? Where are the sacred cows? We uncover the hidden stakeholder. We reveal what they are using now and how, those various interlocking systems. And we also reveal what they expect from it. Most of the users, most of the companies that are using SharePoint bought it because they have a wicked search problem. And yet when SharePoint is deployed, search is not fixed, which is surprising to me. I was always like, what? Because eventually then they go, well, this doesn't work because what they got was out of the box search. So what do they do? They go buy the Google search appliance. It is remarkable. It is remarkable how many SharePoint companies are running the GSA on top of SharePoint. Unbelievable. And then we want to define the activities and the problems that we're solving. Has anyone else here gone into an elevator with no buttons? Have you seen that? Okay. So, so fascinating to me. I had an experience in Seattle. So you go up and they have the elevator banks, so one through 10, 10 through 21 or whatever. And you go and there are no elevator buttons. So then you go back out and you see that there's a touchpad. And you're supposed to touch the floor that you want to go to. And then the touchpad tells you what elevator to go to. Doesn't tell you where the name of the elevator is. You gotta figure that out. And if you're me, you gotta figure it out in one or two trips back and forth between the touchpad and the elevators. So then you get in the elevator and woe be to ye if you change your mind. Because there are no buttons in the elevator. You just go to the floor that you have been designated to go to. I ask you this, it's not a rhetorical question. What problem were they solving? I mean, they like defy mental models. Oh my God. And we need to shift. We need to stop designing for the technology. Marianne, what do you mean by that? I'm going to tell you. So this is Microsoft in 2000. You know, the web had just started. Navigation was dominant. Look at that navigation at the top. Ooh, isn't that great? And, you know, it's a text-based web, and people were actually reading at that time because they were on 56K, was screaming fast, and so all of this rendered quickly. And then we go to, you know, 2001, and they've discovered the right rail, and it's a little more designed, and there's an actual picture there now because, you know, technology is getting faster, Moore's Law. And 2004 is when broadband really hit the road. And so what you have now is the big honking picture that makes that splash, doesn't look pretty. And we still got all the text links down there. Remember, this is when we hit contextual text links. And then we get into, now they understand links and page rank. 
That's the actual homepage. Three screens. Let me give it to you again. There you go. That's the homepage. That, more links and more links. Did they honestly think somebody was going to navigate that? I guess they did, but it really wasn't about you and me. It was about ranking in the search results. And here we have Microsoft 2015. Isn't that great? Am I the only one that read that thing by Google about visual complexity? Oh, that's right, because Google doesn't share their research broadly anymore. And who's going to figure out that stuff down there? And what's the home page for? It's like wallpaper. We are not blameless here. WordPress site, after WordPress site, after WordPress site, after WordPress site. What's that for? We're designing for WordPress, because it's easy. It doesn't matter if they're using it. You saw the heat maps. Half of those were WordPress. So what problem are we solving? So iterate. We need to iterate throughout the engagement. And the way we start is we iterate off of the old school discovery project. And I was kidding with John Coleman earlier about going to like 90 slides and having a picture of my dog in there. This was my dog, Shady. She's no longer with me. She did like cookies, though. We need a new world discovery project. We need to have a four or an eight hour session that is dedicated to exactly what I've been talking about for the last few hours. And I'm going to lay it out for you. And I hope that you download this deck. It makes it so much easier. On the project that I used it for, which, by the way, I can't present as a case study because I have since left the company in a blood wedding that happened at the end of January. And the project hasn't launched yet. We have to get all together on the same page, on a journey to get on the same page. And I believe in my bones, and I know that it works, that this is the way to do it. You need a business model review. Theirs, not yours. And it has to happen in the room with them so they can make it happen. And if there's time, you can do a SWAT Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and I don't know what the T stands for. Thank you. We need to do our own cat woe, client-specific cat woe in the room. Who are your customers? Who does the work? What are the worldviews that you have? How can we consolidate with us? Out of that will come a roadmap, not in the room, but later. This is my favorite slide because it was an actual client of mine. And we talk a lot about content, and we talk a lot about content models. Clients don't understand them. Show them this, and they will. At the top, what I did was I went through, and I crawled their site, and I got all of the pages listed, and I categorized them. Utility is like home page, footer, you know, contact us, all of that. And then the rest is their navigation. There are high-level navigation categories. And then I went into Google Analytics, and I tracked where the customers are going. Like, you know, where do they spend their time, the users? And I got news for you, client. Your press releases are really important to you. Your clients want more about why they should buy your product. I understand that you like the webinars, and you think there's value there, but they're not getting there from the navigation. So you have to associate the Fracken webinar with the page in the product that helps them understand why they should buy it. 
It's a very easy, it's on the slide. If not, I will send a link to the article that talks to you about how to do this. It is, in a view, why you need a content audit and content curation. And this should come up in the room. Who's going to own it? I'm not saying you should trim it back, but you definitely need to know where you should put content and possibly where you should not focus so much energy. We need to agree on a UXIA model that talks about purpose and objectives and determines the content, the audience, the target audience, and then defines the calls to action. I love the purity of IA and UX as much as you do. The clients that we work with need to pay us. And the way that they pay us is by having their websites earn money. And it is incumbent on us, because of our knowledge of users and behavior, to help them establish metrics that will exhibit that our work generates revenue. It could be engaged visitor. It could be contact us. It could be or whatever. Otherwise, they're going to be talking about ranking. Where am I ranking? Why am I not number one? Not whatever. We can't use ranking anymore because everyone in this room could do a search, and you would likely get different results because of personalization. Ranking is dead. Conversion is it. We need to talk about conversions. We need to find conversions that demonstrate our work has value. And the infrastructure model, which is incredibly important for us to know, again, what are the systems we're working with? What is the workflow process? And what are the resources? And then we look at the design model, the idea that they might have a style guide, they might have brand issues, and they might have sacred cows that we need to deal with. I want to go back here. This was an exercise that comes from the IDEO toolbox. And it was enormously successful. And you'll find it on the web, I like, I want, I wish. And basically what I did was I put the huge, you know, like sticky notes, but the big ones around the room. And I had, you know, a section that said, I want, I like, and I wish. And then we had little stickies. And people spent 20 minutes, the clients and us, the agency, everyone involved. What do we keep? What do we change? What do you like? What do you not want to go away no matter what happens? And then what was so valuable is the I wish. And a direct example is, I can't remember, it was some component that I put on the homepage where they said, you know, I wish we had a place on the homepage where we could talk about upcoming events. Just random. And there were a number of them that put that up there. So I put it on the homepage, and the clueless, I mean the account manager, came to me and said, you know, we're going to take this out. And I was able to point literally in the handwriting of the VP and say, no, it's something that they want. You know, it's not part of any document that we're looking at. It's an articulated wish that we can fulfill. And that will delight them. And then here is another exercise that I did. It was equally as illuminating. I did it within house at the agency that had the blood wedding, I used to do internal tradings about, you know, what are wireframes or whatever. And so I had everyone sketch their idealized homepage. And granted, there's a lot of talk about how we shouldn't go to the homepage, and that's fine. You can pick any page. But have everyone in the room with pencils and paper and whatever start drawing what they want, what they like, what they see. It becomes eminently clear where the intersections are when you have competing visuals. Why bother? 
This is falling water. It's one of Frank Lloyd Wright's most famous designs. And it's famous because it was so structurally unsound, it started falling apart immediately when it was built. That cantilever is totally unsupported. And all of the engineers that have gone in there have been like, yikes. And they just went through this like multi-million dollar you know, shoring up and all of this, which they had to hide because it's so beautiful. But you know what? Beautiful that doesn't work is vapid and annoying. And if you walk away with one thing, beautiful that doesn't work is not what they paid for. It's what we want them to want, but it's not what they paid for. And if we don't do anything, then we're like Nero. We're just watching Rome burn. And they're going to change our designs, and it's not going to work, and there's going to be a lot of unhappiness all around. But we have an opportunity to go from this to this. <laughs> and I'm so mad that Boone got SpongeBob out on Twitter before I was able to have this slide. But this is really what I want. I want us all to be celebrating jobs well done with clients that are delighted, that have websites that are making money in a way that can be attributed to the work that we've done. And that's the type of group thinking that I want us all to engage in, and I hope that you do. So thank you for the talk. Yes. That was wonderful. Thank you. My question is on something you said early on about users' attention moving from the navigation to the center of the page, mm -hmm. which is something that I've been talking about with absolutely zero research behind it. It's just something yes. that I've been assuming is happening. Can you talk a little bit more about the resources or the research or kind of what you meant by that, just to make sure I understand correctly? So the research, I mean, it can be found in the slide that I use that on. This is the problem when you have 89 slides. So you can see here that there is some click attention up there, but when we go from some of the others, there does seem to be marginal interest in the navigation up there. The theory behind this is from George Furness. Shoot, and if you type George Furness, F-U-R-N-A-S, just a sec. Let's see if we can find it. Um, Yeah, that was one. So here you go. Generalized fish-eyed views is the academic research behind it. And basically, that's what he says. And this is part of like sort of general standard information theory, where when people hit a page, they tend to look here, and then they might move up and around, but they go back to the center page. And the pointy-headed way is called the locus of attention. I mean, I have heat maps that will show you on client sites where nobody is like, it's all dark up there. The one where it really shows is with social. Like everyone puts their social icons at the top. It's dark up there. They're not clicking up there. They're clicking all around. But what they're not clicking on are the big pictures. So if they're not clicking on the navigation and they're not clicking on the big pictures, where is the focus? They're going back to the search engine. So what search. happens is okay. they go to a search engine and they come to your page. And for the last three or four years, Google has been recommending that you put your Google Analytics code in the head component because they're not even waiting for the page to load. 
they are, as it loads, they're like, I'm not seeing what I want here, and they're out. So if you put it in the head component, you at least know that they visited, and you get a bounce rate off it. And Google has now stipulated that one of the signals for relevance is page load speed. And so what they're making you do is ensure that content loads first. So, and there's a way of doing that. You, they have you move whatever JavaScript that's loading up the images and the you know, style sheet and all of that. That gets moved away to get the content to load first because they maintain that users want to see something that will tell them they're in the right place. And if they don't see it, they, quote, bounce back and select another search result. So what you failed is you failed the bounce rate and the click-through bounce rate conversion. For the search engine, a conversion is, did you solve their information need? If they come back and select another result, you failed. So does that answer your question? Oh, good. OK. Anyone else? Excellent. Thank you again. If you enjoyed this podcast from the 2015 IA Summit, subscribe and check out the full collection at library.iasummit.org and on iTunes. The 2015 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by the UIE All You Can Learn Library. The All You Can Learn Library will give you the skills and techniques you need for a competitive design advantage with 24-7 access to experts and UX topics. For more information, visit aycl.uie.com. That's aycl.uie.com. As always, thanks for listening.